Let us pray. Father, we pray that this day you would take us more deeply into the mystery of the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ, of all that has been accomplished on our behalf through his suffering. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. We may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Good to see all of you here this morning. Well, today, as you're well aware by now, is Palm or Passion Sunday, the start of Holy Week. As we have seen in our gospel readings throughout the season of Lent, Jesus has been moving toward this moment. This is why he has come into the world. Luke 9.51 tells us Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. His eyes were fixed on accomplishing his mission. During his trial before Pilate, St. John's Gospel records these words of Jesus in reply to Pilate. You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Our service on Palm or Passion Sunday is very intentionally structured. We begin high. We begin with the celebration of the triumphal entry. And we move low toward the reality of why Jesus has indeed arrived in Jerusalem. Knowing that even at the triumphal entry that a cross and suffering await him. I want to invite you this Holy Week to walk with Jesus. To walk with Jesus through all of his passion. I want to encourage you to be a part of our Holy Week services, not just once or twice, but every day that you're afforded the opportunity as it may work in your, with your work schedule. This is a time of sober and somber reflection regarding the ends to which God has gone for our redemption. It's also a time to be filled with awe and gratefulness for what Christ has done for you and for me, reflecting on why all of this had to be. Pastor Tim Keller captures it well when he says, we're more sinful than we ever dared believe, and we're more loved than we ever dared hope. And that's what this week is all about, re- reflecting upon God's incredible love for us to rescue us in our sin. In today's reading from St. Luke's account of the Passion, we see some of the same troubling themes emerging and at play that we looked at last Sunday in the parable of the wicked tenants. Issues of pride, lusts for control, personal autonomy, and worldly power. And we see these themes as well as some new themes exemplified in the players in this scene, if you will. Now, clearly, Jesus is front and center. But other players in this divine drama, if you will, include Pilate, Herod, the religious leaders in Jerusalem, the crowd, and Barabbas. And I want to look briefly at some of these players, not all of them, but some of them this morning, and how some of these key themes that we're talking about are played out tragically for them. 
and look at lessons we need to learn as we ponder the suffering and death of Christ, both for them and for you and me, because Christ died for them just as much as he died for us. My sermon today is entitled, Tragic Ironies. And what we see is a picture of people trapped by their own worldly lust and ambitions, trying to hold on to things which aren't theirs to have, while at the same time being active participants in the execution of the eternal Lord of glory. What I want to do is very briefly look at one or two key points from the tragic examples of several of these people, and then make application for you and me and our lives today. So let's talk about some of the players in this divine drama. First of all, we have the religious leaders. And apart from Jesus and in stark contrast to Jesus, the religious leaders in Jerusalem are most prominent. They are woven throughout the events of Thursday night and Friday from start to finish. They're there for every step along the way. They're there in every scene. And they have one unwavering goal in mind, to have Jesus put to death. They don't care how they need to go about it. They want to see Jesus dead. And time and time again in the Gospels, we hear of these men conspiring to have Jesus put to death, but they refuse to act on multiple occasions out of fear of the crowds, crowds who held Jesus in high esteem. But these leaders comprising the religious aristocracy in Jerusalem saw their window in this week. So why was this week their window? Why was this week their opportunity? Well, I think we need to think in terms of the crowds. Now, so often we hear teaching on the fickleness of the crowds, if you will, in Jerusalem, and how the same crowds that greeted Jesus with shouts of hailing him as king and as Lord in just a few short days, turn on him, crying out, crucify him. That there's some kind of a radical shift that takes place. But I think in reality, and this is attested to by a number of biblical scholars, and I've talked about this before in sermons on Palm Sunday, but really the crowds we're dealing with, by and large, are two very different and distinct crowds, comprised of two very different groups of people. The crowds at the triumphal entry on that Palm Sunday that we celebrate today were those people who the religious leaders feared as they conspired against Jesus. The crowds that they were afraid would rise up against them. The biblical account also points to the crowds on Palm Sunday, not coming from within Jerusalem, but coming from outside of Jerusalem. Remember the whole procession assembled in the area of Bethany and Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, in the same area where just a few days prior, Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. And from there, they went into Jerusalem. The timing of Jesus' arrest was key in the religious leaders controlling and keeping at a distance the crowds of people who were supportive of Jesus. Remember, Jesus was arrested in the middle of the night. And most of the populace in Jerusalem was focused on the Sabbath, which this year was also the day before the Passover. They were busy. They were busy making preparation. And remember, word didn't spread so quickly in that day. They didn't have Twitter. They didn't have cell phones. They didn't text. 
And this was certainly not a day with all the busyness of preparation where a common citizen would have just been hanging around outside of the praetorium where Herod, excuse me, where Pilate held court. The fact is the only Jews who really knew what was going on and where Jesus was physically present at the time were primarily the priests and members of the Sanhedrin, the religious elites. And remember, this was all unfolding at an incredibly fast pace. The Roman workday began at 6 a.m. and usually ended, at least for wealthy Romans, around noon. They did not like to work long days. And when it looked like Pilate may very well release Jesus, this group could easily and quickly assemble a hostile crowd from the circles of the temple elite. Because this is indeed, I believe, where the second crowd came from. Remember, the temple was just a few hundred yards away from the praetorium where Pilate was holding court. So it was no big deal for the religious leaders to send over and get a bunch of their cronies to come in to shout crucify him. And for the Jewish leaders, this was all about power and temporal worldly control. The religious leaders in Jerusalem were incredibly wealthy and corrupt. This is attested to not just by scripture, but by other historical records as well. Now, to be clear, there were priests and religious leaders who lived outside of Jerusalem who would come to do their service at the temple who were not corrupt. Zechariah, the husband of Elizabeth, is a perfect example of this. But within Jerusalem, that power elite was very corrupt and very wealthy. In John chapter 18, we see an incredible irony. We read that then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them. Do you hear the incredible and twisted irony in what takes place here as St. John records it in the midst of all of these events? These religious leaders were hyper-scrupulous, if you will, about not going into the praetorium because they didn't want to be defiled and celebrating the Passover, while at the very same time, they were conspiring to have an innocent man executed, to have an innocent man murdered. Thou shalt not murder? Not too long ago, I was reading something online. It was uh, an account of a mafia hitman a number of years ago. And after he was arrested, someone interrogating him asked him, how could you do what you did over and over and over again and not feel any remorse? And he replied, well, I had peace when I was doing it because I always prayed before I killed someone. Hopefully, we will never go as far as that hitman or as far as the Sanhedrin. But what we see here is pride and lust for earthly power and control. What we see is false, a false and grossly flawed understanding of God, of what genuine faith in God looks like. And the fact that genuine faith requires holiness of heart that is wrought in us by God himself. Yes, the religious elite in Jerusalem are an extreme example, but their extreme example should speak to us. 
again, hopefully not to this extreme, but any one of us, any one of us can fall into this kind of trap. If we allow earthly carnal lusts to get a footing, to become a stronghold in our lives. Lust for power, ambition, wealth, success as defined in the eyes of the world can lead us into an abundance of sin. It can lead us into disobedience. It can lead us into a distorted and ungodly perspective where we begin like these religious leaders did, viewing our relationship with God as something which is transactional. If I keep this law, if I do this, if I do that, then God is obligated to do this for me. If I don't do this, then God won't do this to me. And they miss the whole point about holiness of heart that grows out of a living relationship with God. A living faith. Not something that is mechanical or just going through the motions or transactional. Henry Nouwen in his book, The Selfless Way of Christ, which I have quoted quite a bit through Lent, I'm going to quote again twice today, says this. Power can take many forms. Money, connections, fame, intellectual ability, skills. These are all ways to get some sense of security and control and to strengthen the illusion that life is ours to dispose of. It is therefore quite understandable that on the personal as well as on the national and international level, power is the name of the game. There is almost nothing more difficult to overcome than our desire for power. Power always lusts after greater power precisely because it is an illusion. Despite our experience that power does not give us the sense of security we desire, but instead reveals our own weaknesses and limitations, we continue to make ourselves believe that more power will eventually fulfill our needs. Lust for worldly power, lust for the things of this world, will lead us into an abundance and multitude of sin. Just like it did these leaders. Through scripture, it's prophesied that Jesus will cause rulers like this to fall. Even in Mary's song in Luke 1, we read, He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. In Jesus, in this hour, we see an incredible contrast between him and these religious leaders. Jesus, in his trial, who spoke very little, said almost nothing. Jesus, who refused to defend himself on earthly grounds. As we read in our New Testament reading this morning from St. Paul's letter to the Philippians, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So we have the religious leaders. Next, next, let's look at Pilate. Pilate really is featured in two scenes, if you will, here. 
First, we have the religious leaders bringing Jesus directly to Pilate in verses 1 through 5 of Luke 23. This is immediately after them arresting Jesus and interrogating him themselves. And they're bringing Jesus to Pilate because they don't have the legal authority to put Jesus to death. That was the prerogative of the Roman leaders. Scholars concur that probably Pilate had no familiarity with Jesus prior to this point. Yes, Jesus was indeed well known among the Jews, but his teachings attracted peaceful crowds and nothing about him would have garnered the attention of the pagan Romans who were primarily concerned with maintaining control and avoiding uprisings. And Jesus' message was neither treasonous nor a threat to Rome's power. If he had been either of these things, there wouldn't have been any need for a Jewish trial beforehand. The Romans would have dealt swiftly both with Jesus and with all of his followers because the Romans were quite adept at this. They were quite adept at employing cruelty as a deterrent and maintaining control. So the Sanhedrin bring Jesus to Pilate. In verse 2, we see that they assert three charges against him. They claim that Jesus is misleading the nation. Second, that Jesus forbade paying of taxes to Caesar. Patently false. Jesus said the complete opposite. What did Jesus say? Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and unto God what is God's. And the third charge they assert is that Jesus claims to be a king. Now this one charge would merit Pilate's attention. But Pilate determines very quickly that this charge as well is not a threat to him or to Rome. Daryl Bach in his commentary on Luke's gospel in this passage says this. Jesus is a king, but he is not out to overthrow Rome. Pilate will later write king of the Jews on a placard placed on Jesus' cross because he is not impressed with either the charge or Jesus' credentials. Pilate realizes Jesus is not guilty of any Roman crime. And frankly, this probably was all just a big bother and a hassle to Pilate. When Pilate realizes that Jesus is a Galilean, and Galilee being the jurisdiction of Herod, and that Herod at the time was staying in Jerusalem, Pilate sends them on their way to let Herod deal with this headache, to get this out of his hair. However, Pilate, I mean, Herod finds no crime committed by Jesus either, so he sends Jesus back to Pilate. And Pilate finds himself in a political dilemma. Does he do what he knows to be right and truthful and release Jesus without further consequence? Or does he cave into the pressure of political expediency? Granted, Pilate is a corrupt pagan, a Roman governor. But every single one of us, to a lesser degree, yet in very real ways, will be confronted with this same temptation in our lives time and time again. Again, to quote Henry Nouwen, the Gospels depict Jesus on the eve of his death, making clear to his disciples that their ministry is possible only because they no longer belong to the world and its ways. In his high priestly prayer to his father, he says, they do not belong to the world any more than I belong to the world. It is, not, it is this not belonging that is the basis for their mission. I am not asking you to remove them from the world, but to protect them from the evil one. 
As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. John 17, 15 through 19. In these words, Jesus tells us that the spirit by whom we participate in the divine life is the same spirit who allows us to be in the world without being of it. The world, however, is the place where the evil one roams. It is the home of the tempter who wants to snatch us away from God and return us to the road of upward mobility. We must face and deal with this tempter eye to eye. We may not be tempted with the exact same type of scenario as Pilate, but we are tempted with decisions to do that which is right versus that which would win us worldly praise. A second time, Pilate declares Jesus is innocent. Look at verses 13 through 15 with me. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You have brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. He's trying to walk a tightrope of doing what is right, while at the same time trying to please people with evil, corrupt intentions at the very same time. And frankly, this is just impossible. This is an impossibility. Pilate offers to have Jesus whipped, and whipping here is probably not scourging that preceded crucifixion, but a less severe form of whipping. He offers to have Jesus whipped and then released. When this fails, he concocts the trade with Barabbas thinking, surely, surely they don't want Barabbas released. But in the end, Pilate caves in. He wants to appease the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders. He doesn't want to embarrass them publicly. So he does that which is absolutely wrong and sinful. Right choices, brothers and sisters, are not about being popular. Right choices, doing the right thing, is not about being well-received. Doing what is right, doing what is godly, is often the hard choice. Doing what is right will not always make us popular or please others. Let me rephrase that. Doing what is right will often make us unpopular or unpleasing to others. And yet God calls us to do that and not cave to worldly, earthly pressures. To not cave into being a person pleaser. But to live for God and Him alone. So we have Pilate. Finally, we have Barabbas. So let's take a look at him for a moment. Barabbas was notorious, a robber, one who had led an insurrection. All of these things are said about him in the Gospels. And implied in this is that his inciting insurrection had resulted in the deaths of people, including Roman soldiers. And from Pilate's perspective, there shouldn't have been any choice 
The people should have wanted Barabbas crucified and Jesus released. Not that crucifying anyone under any circumstances was ever right. But that was the choice in this culture in this time that confronted them. So we look at Barabbas, there's an incredible irony here. Because in Hebrew and Aramaic, Barabbas, the very name means son of the father. Bar, son of. Abbas, the father. So Barabbas is called son of the father. And the irony is that this is Jesus' true and eternal identity. He is the eternal son of God the father. Another irony Jesus was being falsely accused of rebellion when Barabbas was guilty of this very act. And the irony of Barabbas also gives us a profound and poignant picture of exactly what Jesus has done. Barabbas, a guilty captive, deserving death, is physically set free. Through the suffering and death of Jesus, the eternal son of God, eternal son of the Father, sinful captives like you and me are set free. I'm going to give you a little bit more of a picture of just how eclectic your rector's taste in music are, because maybe you know I like to listen to Renaissance polyphony when I'm working in the office. I also like bluegrass music. (laughs) And there's a bluegrass song that came out about 40 years ago by a group called Patent Pending that was entitled Barabbas. I want to read just the last three brief stanzas of this song. Who's hanging there upon my cross, the one they built for me, who's dying there in the middle that Barabbas might be free. A purple robe, a crown of thorns, a face forgiving and kind. Nailed to the cross on Calvary, the cross that should have been mine. I lived 2,000 years ago, a sinner friend like you. My name is Barabbas, but yours is Barabbas too. Every one of us is a Barabbas. Every one of us was deserving of death. But through the suffering and death of Jesus, the eternal Son of God, sinful captives like you and me are set free. So as we come to this Holy Week, I want to see you more than today and next Sunday. Because there's just something wrong about going from the triumphal entry to the resurrection. We've got to walk with Jesus in Jerusalem. We've got to walk with him to the upper room. And there's a garden. And there's an arrest. And there's humiliation and mocking and scourging and torture. And there's crucifixion. And there's a tomb. And we need to walk through all of that with him. As we ponder just how great his sacrifice is for us. What he has done on our behalf so that we could know life, so that we could be set free. So walk with him this week in somberness and sobriety, 
grieving that he had to die for my sin and your sin and walk with him this week in wonder and awe of God's incredible love for you and me and for all the world in Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, even as I've just spoken, I pray that you would fill us with awe and wonder and gratitude and grief and thanksgiving and love for you and love for Christ and the cross of Christ. Father, make us profoundly aware this week that before the throne in heaven, Christ was lifted high on a throne of a cross. He suffered and died for us. For he could cry out, it is finished. The work is accomplished. Lord, take us deeply into that mystery that we may love and serve you in true fidelity and holiness of heart. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.